Okay, well, if you haven't done so already, uh, turn in your Bible to Psalm 13. And as you're turning there, I'll just mention briefly, I, I, I don't tend to be a highly emotional person. Um, I don't remember a time, there probably has been a time, but I don't remember a time when any news story or current events has brought me to tears. Uh, but I have been broken and weepy over the last two weeks following the killing of George Floyd and the events that have unfolded since then and um, that have followed from that. You are all as keenly aware of those as I am. But uh, I, I, I will say I've been, I've been weepy so much so that I know that uh, it'll only be by the grace of God that I even make it through this message as I speak to this subject, the, the issues that we're living in the middle of right now. Um, but I want to do so with Psalm 13 as our text. And it is a different sort of message, even in the way that I've approached it. I'll uh, describe that a little bit more as we get into this. But I'm going to share as much personally as I will, uh, just kind of in an expository fashion from, from the text. But let's look first at Psalm 13. And um, I will invite you, if you are so inclined, to stand for the reading of the Scriptures as we look at that together and listen to the Word of God together. Out of Psalm 13, reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the Word of the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as always that you have spoken into this troubled world we live in. We would be desperate and confused if that were not the case, Lord, that that you've spoken and that word has been written down for our hearing. And we open it always with the great expectation that you will speak in it and through it by your spirit. We need that today as much as we ever do. And so God, I ask that you would speak your word by your spirit and through your servant to your people for your glory and uh, maybe more than any time I, in my recent memory, God, I would ask you to move me out of the way, even as I share personal accounts, God, that you would, you would move me out of the way that you really would be speaking to your people in this time today. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, we don't know the immediate context of the psalm. Uh, David spent much of his life threatened by one set of enemies or another. And again, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that. If you've read the psalms, you get that uh, sense. But we don't know the specifics here, the circumstances or the enemies, which is actually kind of helpful to us. There's a certain uh, anonymity to it um, and a certain generality to it. And so uh, it's helpful to give voice to our own cries sometimes uh, when it's just a, a general cry of a person needing deliverance from God. But whatever it is in this case, it has the makings of a lament as so many of the Psalms do. And I just want to just kind of observe quickly what's here because as I said, I'm approaching this message in a quite different way. But, but you could say we see in verses 1 and 2 that he describes his situation. And, and what is that? Well, it's that he's, he's calling out to the Lord and the Lord seems to be just absent from the situation. He doesn't see him in, in the midst of his situation. He doesn't see him there present to meet whatever his need is. He doesn't hear from him or sort of feel his presence. He's just, he's, he's in need and yet feels alone, taking counsel in his own soul, he says. So he just describes that situation here and wondering how long, God, will it remain this way? That I'm, that I'm here on my own somehow, distant from your presence. And then in verses three and four, he makes a, a supplication so consider and answer me, O God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. God, answer me, lest, lest my enemies who have me under their thumb right now say in a sort of mocking way that they've prevailed over me. That you can, you can almost see the smirk on the face of somebody who would have that attitude. And so it's, he describes the situation, makes the supplication, then rejoices in his salvation in verses five and six. And I love this so often. It's true about lament psalms that they end this way that in spite of, in spite of the seeming absence of God, that he's hidden his face and that he's hidden it for a long time, apparently the, the psalm would imply. That even then it ends with a statement of trust. I have trusted in your salvation. My heart shall rejoice. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully for, uh, with me. And I know because he has dealt bountifully with me, I know that he will again. I know that he will again. And that's, so that's sort of the, 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 the cry here, the raw human cry of the psalmist's heart. And as we studied that even last summer, this was one of our observations about how one of the things that's wonderful about the Psalms is how, how just very human they are and how relatable they are to those who encounter need. But as I mentioned, uh, sort of implied, I suppose, at the outset, I, I want to speak uh, to the subject of racism this morning that, that we're we're seeing uh, 
our, our whole nation shaken by once again, but shaken by in a different way, I would say this time. I, I, there's a watershed moment that we've met um, that there, there is just something different. This time, it, it has perhaps something to do uh, with the fact that it's coming on the heels of this pandemic and the quarantine and just we're emotionally strung out by that. Uh, but I believe there's a gift in all of this from God in what he, uh, what he is doing and going to do through this. But I want to speak to that subject and I want, I want Psalm 13 just to give us language to cry out to God to deliver our country from the scourge of racism that has, has plagued us for far too long. That's plagued us for our whole history. And even for our lifetime when we thought maybe we were walking out from under that some decades ago. And it still rears its ugly and evil head time and time again. And, and so I'll say even and in speaking to this in any context, uh, there's a risk of saying the wrong thing. And I probably will. In fact, I surely will. I, I say the wrong thing when I'm not even talking about anything very sensitive or controversial. I almost certainly will. Uh, there's a risk of sounding like I understand the issues thoroughly, which I certainly don't. Um, and other risks that come along with it. In other words, there's something safe about not saying anything about it. And yet something terribly, terribly wrong about not saying anything about it. And, uh, and even though there are those risks, I'm going to take them. I'm going to take the added risk of sharing a, a personal story and sort of wrapping my message around that. Uh, hopefully for the purpose of, of illustrating some observations we need to make. Some, revealing some things we need to see. And, and somehow in a personal experience with that, it becomes less abstract. That it's, it's not about, in other words, looking, about what's ha looking at what's happening right now and interpreting that or, you know, in some cases choosing whose narrative of events you're going to adopt as your own and that sort of thing. It's, it's really trying to look at um, a chain of events, a history of events in, in, in a more... Uh, transcendent way, if you will, or, or an overarching way and, and bring something uh, of a personal story to that, that that makes it a little bit more concrete. And at the very least, for me, makes it impossible to dismiss as simply an abstraction or somebody else's issue um, or something that's not really real. One of the things that happens in these, in these individual events like George Floyd's death, like Breonna Taylor, like Ahmaud Arbery, all which have happened in the last three months and others that have happened in the preceding years, what tends to happen is that every single event, um, we, we get into the details and discovering the details and sort of down into the minutia enough that the, the, the details obscure to some extent what really happened and give us a way to say, eh, I'm not really sure about that, and at least I don't have to feel uncomfortable about it. Um, so I hope, I hope that I make us uncomfortable today. 
or I shouldn't even say that I make us uncomfortable. I just hope this subject makes us uncomfortable and that we don't allow ourselves to get comfortable. And so I'll, I'll do that again by way uh, initially of a personal story on this subject. So the movie Stand By Me, if you saw that, it's been uh, a long time ago now. But um, it, it's about kind of the sort of adventures of a group, of a, a small group of 12-year-old boys over a long weekend. And lots of just boy stuff happens, you know, over that weekend. Uh, a great story there. But, but it ends with a line that says, I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Well, I know this to be true, and, and maybe you do too. Even if you've never heard that line, maybe that sort of resonates. But when I was 12, my best friend was a boy named Hamilton, and we called him Hamp for short. But Hamilton was a black boy, lived across the street from me in downtown Moorhead City, small southern town. Again, most of you, if you've lived here locally, you know you know that town, but, and I'll say, don't worry, this is not uh, a story about me and my best friend per se, but it's significant to appreciating uh, some of what transpired later. But, but from fifth grade through middle school, those, those sort of unsurpassed best friend kind of years, you know, uh, through f- fifth grade through middle school, he and I were, were virtually inseparable. We went to school together. We spent all our free time together. I mean, all our free time together. We played sports together, even got our first job together uh, at age 12, uh, washing dishes at, a, at a, a breakfast restaurant on the waterfront. Um, and so we, he slept over at my house on Friday and Saturday nights. We, we pulled out the sofa bed in the living room, set an alarm for like 3, 3.30 in the morning to get up to go walk down to the waterfront to wash dishes at this breakfast restaurant. Now, can you imagine uh, your 12-year-old doing that these days? <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, so that, was, uh, that was sort of life that we lived together. And the point, just to say, um, he was a best friend like best friends are. And he was, he was a, almost a fixture in our house and, and in a real sense, part of our family, so much so that he even called my grandmother Mama, because that's what we called her. He addressed her by the same uh, name that we used for her. She lived right beside us. Um, our backyards connected. So during that period of time, and it was probably around age 11, we were outside playing and uh, again, had sort of spilled over from, her, from our backyard into hers. But she came out um, and started chastising us about something. I think it was a broken board on the fence. I really don't remember precisely, but it seems like it was, it was something like that. But whatever it was, on this particular occasion, we were not actually guilty of said offense. Now, there were many times, probably most times, we were guilty of whatever we were accused of. But this time, we had no knowledge of what happened to the fence or anything like that. And so I was explaining that to her, and she was rather insistent about it and kind of kept on. And at a certain point, Hamilton chimed in and said, you know, Mama, it wasn't us. And so, so pardon the offensive and shocking, disturbing nature of what I'm, what I'm going to say next, but it's sort of necessary to make the point. And Hamilton, as he chimed in and said that to her, Uh, She looked at him and pointed her finger and said, shut up, nigger. 
And so much happened in that just flash of a moment because it was more shocking to me then than perhaps it was to you even right now. Uh, selfishly, you know, I was embarrassed that that happened. But, but more than that, I was, I was so disturbed because this was my grandmother. And she was, uh, she was certainly no uh, perfect woman. And we had plenty of mammal stories about her, but still, she was a grandmother who did grandmother kind of stuff, right? I mean, so we, we sat on her lap, and she rocked us and read Curious George to us and other children's books, and we sat in the porch swing with her as the sun went down and the, the street lights came on. We watched cars go by as we ate ice cream and, you know, got goosebumps from the summer breeze. You know, memories like that, grandmother kind of stuff. But, but right then... There was, a, there was a hatefulness and a contempt on her face and in her voice that I hadn't seen before. And that didn't seem like that belonged on the face of, of grandmothers. I mean, I, I, I knew of that kind of thing all too well. I mean, come on, I lived in the small town south. This was an unfamiliar territory, but it was, it was just so disturbing to see on that face and hear and that voice. And then on the other hand, here's my very best friend who was the, the target of that dehumanizing remark. And make no mistake, that's exactly what it was and exactly what it was intended to be. And he mattered to me. And I'd say at that time in my life, if you'd forced me to choose between him and Mamaw, I'd have chosen Hamilton. Um, but almost immediately, he laughed it off. As if it was funny to see an old lady get so worked up over anything. And honestly, that was probably part of it uh, for him and for me. You know, when you're a boy, both, both Hamilton and I were younger brothers. And if you're a younger sibling, you learn the, uh, the art of aggravation. You know, you learn how to be annoying um, because you don't have other power. And so you just get somebody worked up enough, you know, and upset. That's one of your superpowers. And so there probably was something amusing about seeing a mammal, a prim and proper old lady uh, that worked up. But there was more to it than that, uh, for sure. But, but it, it probably set me at ease um, a little bit for the moment, and we made jokes about that later. But, but as I said earlier, it, it was a flash of a moment, like a, a flash of lightning in the middle of a thunderstorm. So if you've ever, ever been in a thunderstorm where the power's out and you're sitting in the dark and lightning just lights up, the sky, and even the room that you're sitting in. And just, just for a moment, you see what, what you've been sitting in the midst of otherwise in the dark. Uh, and for just a moment, it's lighted, and then it goes dark again. It was, it was a flash, and in that flash, it revealed two things that had otherwise been living in the dark Two things about these individual people in my life, but two things about racism more generally that have been lifelong lessons and, and I'm sad to say lifelong patterns in our country. But, but the first thing revealed there was what I understood the message to be is that mammal liked black people just fine as long as they stayed in their place. 
she thought that he was something less than her. Uh, not because he was a child. Make no mistake about it. It, it, it. it would have been not only understandable, but almost predictable at that, in that day and age for an elderly person to say, how dare you speak to me, an adult, that way? You're a child. You don't speak to me. That is not what she said, and that was not her concern. That was not her concern at that at the moment. She, she spoke to him that way because he was black, and she spoke it as if she expected him to know what his place was and to stay in it, and he had just crossed a line. I got that message. Uh, that, that what, and, and that message from Mamaw was the message a lot of other white people in my town, frankly, um, could have uttered as well. And that they communicated in unspoken ways. We like black people just fine as long as they stay in their place, so to speak. The second thing that it revealed, this was just part of life for Hamilton. This, by 11 years old, this was nowhere close to the first time somebody had addressed him that way or, or some variation of that. This was, this was just, just part of life. He had to learn how to navigate a world where he would routinely be treated that way. And his mother would have known that part of her parenting task was teaching him how to navigate that kind of world where he was going to be treated that way. Teaching her children's skills of how to deal with those kinds of situations. You know, and if he was going to maintain any sense of dignity, he'd have to hold on to it himself because there would always be somebody trying to take it from him. Those, those are the kind of lessons he had to learn and that his, his mother had to teach him. You know, so he would have had to, I don't know that this happened, but, you know, when I was 16 and I got my driver's license, my parents would have been concerned with, with telling me before I drove off that first time, now be sure to obey the speed limit. Don't let anybody else in the car right now. You don't need the distractions. Come home before it gets dark. I don't want you driving at night right to start with. Things like that. Hamilton's mother would need to teach him all those things. Plus, if you get stopped, keep both hands on the wheel. Don't reach for your wallet unless you're told to. And don't do it too quickly smile a little bit, be respectful, be polite, because she would know that the risks of him not coming home were not only because of traffic safety, but because of a potential uh, inopportune encounter with a law enforcement officer or just the wrong person at the wrong time. The point is, he... He, had, he experienced life differently than I did. And this kind of thing that I just observed and was undone by was normal for him. Those were two lessons taught to me in a flash. And, and then there was me, of course. I'm the other character in the story. I, I, and I knew that there was probably more of, in, in, in my heart, what I observed in my grandmother of my own sense of superiority, but even more undeniable was the fact that Hamilton's struggle would never have to be my struggle unless I made it my struggle. You know, that I, I, could, enter, I could enter that fray if I wanted to. I could sort of join 
him, come alongside him or others who might be you know, victims of that sort of racial prejudice and mistreatment or whatever. Um, but I could exit uh, whenever I wanted to. That, that did not have to be my battle unless I made it my battle. And by and large, that's been the story of my life ever since then, I would say, that, that, that by and large, I haven't made racism my struggle. It hasn't had to be my struggle. I've been aware of the ongoing reality of it, um, but I haven't had to fight that battle. Uh, I've had my own challenges in life to make my path, you know, and um, I have and avoided other conflicts. That's probably true of, uh, of most, most of us listening to this, I would say. But along the way, I've remained quite aware um, that racism is still a reality. And what's been made more vividly clear in these, in these last few weeks, weeks is it's still a reality with the very same face on it that I saw all those years ago. That, that, that on the side of the one um, sort of dishing out that racial uh, mistreatment and on the side of the one receiving it or being afflicted by it, it's, it's fundamentally the same thing in form now as it was then. And all of that, all of that got stirred up uh, in, in the last couple of weeks. It's sort of just been dredged up. Um, and again, by the grace of God, sort of had a light shone on it. In this, kind of in this, in the aftermath of not only George Floyd's death, but, but death, but as I mentioned earlier, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd's in the in the in the just most sickeningly callous and inhumane way um, that he was killed. And in the midst of all of the swarm of stuff going around the internet, I saw two videos that really, for me, just made just just crystallized a lot of what I've even just been describing about my own experience. And I'll try to mention those quickly, but one of them was a video of a conflict between a, a, a white woman and a black man in Central Park. You may or may not be familiar with that story. It, it wasn't as newsworthy because it, it wasn't um, of the same consequence. Nobody died as a result of this. But the long story short, she was walking her dog in the park, let her dog off the leash in an area where all dogs are supposed to be on a leash. Uh, there's this uh, black man uh, who was an avid bird watcher. He had been actually, as I, th- I think I read, the, the like head of the ornithology club at Harvard University in some previous years. This was something that he regularly did. And he asked her to put her dog on a leash and she refused. They got into a little exchange about that and he started videoing the incident. And that upset her. And I can't necessarily um, kind of project onto that all of what her motives were. But but it was as if she was saying, how dare you? <laughs> if she's the one breaking the law here, but how dare he sort of have the upper hand in this and be insisting um, what he was insisting. And she, so she goes up to him and says, she did say, please stop filming in a real agitated kind of way. 
But ironically, it was the same kind of finger pointing that I witnessed from my mamma. And then when he refused, she said, I'm going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening my life. You can go back and watch. You, you, you can find that video if you want to look it up. Her name was Amy Cooper. Uh, if that helps you find it. But she had the same sense of superiority is really the point. She had the same sense that when push came to shove, she could leverage that. There was nothing at all threatening about what this man was saying. If anything, it was the other way around by somebody who had let their dog off the leash. If anybody was threatened by this, there was nothing threatening at all about it. But she knew, number one, if she made that claim, she thought she could get her way. Number two, she hoped if she called the police and made that claim, that they would come and at the very least ruin his day. It didn't turn out that way. It actually went badly for her, I'll say. But it was, it was the face in very recent news of the same kind of contempt that I witnessed as a child. The second video uh, was of a, a young black man trying to stop some others from looting. And I actually didn't watch that video in its entirety at all. But one of the, one of the men he was trying to sort of stop and hold back was in his mid-40s. And they're, they're kind of shouting back and, forth at, back and forth at each other. But this, this man in his mid-40s has tears running down his face. And he says, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. All my life, this has been going on. I don't even remember the precise words of it, but I do remember I'm tired of it. And you see, that, that, that man could have been a childhood friend of mine from my neighborhood. Or, or maybe it would be more accurate to say, my friend Hamilton could very easily have grown up to be that man in that neighborhood or a neighborhood like it with the same story saying, I'm tired of it all my life it's been this way. Because I know that was true for him. I know that was true in his life as a boy. And the same patterns of behavior have persisted all these years. And so all of that, as I, as I observe all of that, as all of that stirred up inside of me, knowing that, you know, on one hand, in our lifetime, so much has changed in these regards. But at moments like these, it feels like nothing has changed. And certainly in, in those particular episodes, like the one in Central Park, like the killing of somebody like George Floyd, in those particular episodes, absolutely nothing has changed. It is, it is the same evil in the heart of men, the same sense of superiority that comes from somewhere that just thinks they're in the position to tell somebody, you can't do that. How dare you tell me? In that respect, nothing about the nature of this sin as it, as at its root has changed. And so I say, how long, O oh Lord, 
That's why I said I wanted Psalm 13 just to give us language to cry out to God. It's not so much an expository sermon of Psalm 13. But for that to give us language to cry out to God to say, How long, O Lord, will black men and women cry out? just to be treated with dignity. By, by everyone, everywhere. How long, how long will they just, must they look within themselves or their own community for consolation because they know if they look outwardly long enough, they'll find contempt. How long might I even be numbered among the enemies that somebody else is praying to be delivered from because in some measure, great or small, might I even have the same sense of superiority and indifference to the struggle that they're experiencing. How long, O oh Lord, and I hope, that's, I hope that's the cry of the church right now. And it will become the cry of our hearts. And, and I'll just conclude by saying, yeah, I, I'm not laying anything at your feet, but I am encouraging you to check your feet and see if you find any of this laying here. And if you do, don't do yourself the disservice of covering it up or explaining it away or flinging it back at me. But bring it before the Lord and say, thank you, God, for revealing the truth to me and my brothers and sisters that we might once and for all have this ugly sin uprooted from us and eradicated from us that we might really be a church that lives on earth as it is in heaven, as one, one people of every nation and tribe and tongue and every color, male, female, Jew, Greek, free and slave and every other thing, one people of God who really love one another as if we are one another. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, my, my prayer is uh, simply that you would work by your Spirit in the hearts of each one of us to do, to do the good work that you desire to do in us. Uh, Lord, I know that my, my words fail in many regards. Um, but your word never returns void. So would you work it together for good in our hearts now in the name of Jesus. Amen.